You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Well, before we get started this morning, please tell someone the title of my sermon today, Contending the Faith, Contending for the Faith. I count it a privilege and an honor every time I'm up here, and I'm excited for what God has in store this morning for us, and this week has been super interesting for me. It's been super busy, and you know, I do what anyone else does in a busy week. I procrastinate going to the gym. Anyone, any one of us can relate with that? No? Oh, well, some people can. There we go. How many of us actually enjoy working out? You know, I wasn't really part of that tribe. You know, growing up, I, I played a little bit of sports here and there. My mom, you know, put me in soccer and swimming, and I did a little bit of, you know, basketball and on the street, and I rode my bike, but just going to the gym, that was, to lift weights, that was just not my cup of tea. I mean, things have changed now. I have a spouse. She keeps me accountable and motivates me. Anyway, the, the other day I was in the weight room and I was looking. There was a guy there and he was just sitting there on his phone, on a bench, not doing anything. And he had his earbuds in. And so I didn't think anything of it. And, you know, an hour goes by. I finished my entire routine. Like, I did some cardio. I went to the weight room. I went back to some cardio. And this guy is just sitting there on this bench doing nothing, just on his phone the entire time. You see, he had, he had the right clothes on. He had the athleisure. He had the Lululemon pants on and everything. But there wasn't a, sweat, there wasn't a drop of sweat on him at all. He was sitting in the right place, but there just wasn't any action. Now, if anyone would have called him while he was at the gym, he could have just texted back and said, sorry, you know, I'm at the gym, or maybe, you know, he could, uh, he could have posted some selfies, right, and, you know, getting my workout on type thing, but he didn't even do uh, that, so much as touch the weights, didn't even lift them. You see, he looked the part, but was ineffective in the place he was sitting. He was building no muscles, maybe some of his thumb muscles, but that was about it. Now, sometimes Christians are like this, church. We, we were saved by grace. We are free from the power of sin and death, claiming that Satan has no authority over our lives anymore. And yet, if we aren't careful, we'll forget that the Christian life is not for the faint of heart. It's not for the lazy. It's a battle. In fact, in Philippians 4, the Apostle Paul writes in verses 13 and 14, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He goes on to say in verse 13, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but for one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straying forward to what lies ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. You see, he describes the Christian life there as reaching the goal. He's making every effort. He's taking hold of it. There's nothing lazy. There's nothing automatic about that. And he says, yet I haven't reached that goal. I'm pursuing that prize. So here we are this morning in the letter of Jude. And this was written about 30 to 40 years after the life of Jesus's. Uh, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and he identifies, Jude identifies himself in verse 1 as 
what does he identify himself as? A servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Actually, this introduction is quite significant. Does anyone know what name dropping is? No? Name dropping is when you've had this experience with someone famous, and at certain times, you know, you drop their name into a conversation so that it's beneficial for you. These days, the kids call it clout chasing. Uh, Well, Jude is going in for a name drop here, and if you were Jewish living in the first century, you'd be impressed. The James he's referring to here is not the Apostle James, but the leader of the Church of Jerusalem who wrote the book of James. He was the half-brother of Jesus, which means Jude would have been a brother of Jesus as well. And so you might be puzzled here. Wait, you know, Jesus' brother, like he introduces himself as James's brother. If you're going to name drop, I mean, why don't you just say, I'm Jesus's brother? Ever heard of him? You know, born in a manger, savior of the world, Messiah, probably read of him in the Bible. But instead he says, hi, I'm Jude, a servant of Jesus, brother of James. And you see, this intro sets the stage for the rest of this letter. We're going to see that in a second. Jude's letter begins with these very comforting words for Christians. In verse 1, it describes us as those who are called, loved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. All these words are passive, these three words. God called, God loved, and God kept. And this is such a beautiful picture. We have to stop and we have to take it all in. God called, God loved, and God kept. God called, Ephesians 1.4 says, God has chosen us in Christ before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless and loved before Him. And so before God said, let there be light, before you even existed, before you didn't even do one bad thing or a good thing, you were called out of the darkness of sin and following your own wisdom and, and the wisdom of this world, and you were called into the light. You were made alive, born again, saved by grace, called to faith, whatever you want to call it. The next point is you are loved. You are sanctified by God. The work of following Jesus. It's the work of growing up in your faith just like a caterpillar in a cocoon. You aren't today what you're going to be in a year, in five years, in 30 years. God is committed to the present work in you and you are presently loved presently being sanctified. And so don't compare yourself to where someone else is in their spiritual journey. We're all in this process growing. In the last day, it says you are kept. This word means you are being continued in a certain state. This is present but points to a future, and it's so encouraging and it's so freeing. It means that God's not going to change his mind about you. You're being kept in this state of being alive in Christ in a state of being sanctified, in a state of being loved by God in Christ. And so let me ask you this, church. Do you think that Jesus could lose his right standing with the Father? After Philippians 2, 1 to 11, right, we see that Jesus is given the name that is above every other name, and that at his name, every single human being who ever existed, every single power of darkness that has ever existed, every single angel in heaven will bow down and admit to his authority as king of all. Do you think that God the Father would change his mind about Jesus? Will he ever look at him and say, oh, I changed my mind about the salvation and the exalting you stuff? No. So if you're united 
to Christ in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, right? He lived the life that I should have lived. He took on the wrath of God that I should have taken. And when God accepted him, he also accepted me. If my life is hidden in Christ, that when God looks at me, he doesn't see Benji's righteousness. He sees Christ's righteousness. So in order for, for God to change his mind about me, he'd have to change his mind about Jesus, and that's just not going to happen. Jude isn't just pulling words out of thin hair. He's not just pulling words out of a hat. These words were specifically chosen to show both you and me that the gospel isn't something you do. It's something that's done to you, chosen, done to you, loved, sanctified, done to you, kept, done for you. So we are called and loved and are kept. Jude's eager to begin by stressing in this letter the security of the believer in God's electing and persevering love. But hold on, let's take a look at the end of this letter too. In verse 24, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory and great joy, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory. So notice in verse 1, we are kept by God for Jesus, and then in verse 24, God is keeping us from falling. So Jude begins and he ends this letter assuring believers that God keeps us from falling away from the faith. And so when someone questions you and asks you, how are you so sure that you're going to be able to keep that faith in the end? And on judgment day, how are you so sure that you're going to be able to keep that faith? What are you going to say? Well, you should say something like this. God has called me out of unbelief. And because of that, I know that he loves me with this particular electing love. And because of that, I know that he will keep me from falling. He will work in me. And that is pleasing in his sight. That's the way Jude begins and he ends this letter. But in the middle, there's a concern. There's something different here. Trouble is brewing. He, he didn't write this, this letter just to help believers feel content, but he wants us to stay vigilant. So after showing them in verse 1 about the electing love of God and the power of God to keep them safe, Jude now pivots to the danger that surrounds them. And he tells them to what? Contend for the faith. In verse 3 it says, Beloved, being very eager to write to you of our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So just because we have this blessed assurance that we sing about doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility to fight. Jude is saying, more important than celebrating your new life in Christ right now is for me to remind you that there is a war. It, I'm writing to beg you, to plead with you, to appeal to you, to fight for the faith. That's what it means to contend. It's this picture of this athlete who trains, who struggles, who, who fights, grinds it out just to get the wind. Or, or, or a soldier in the trenches contending for his or her life in and out of the trenches, always ready with the goal of victory in mind. And The beautiful thing about Salvation Church is that it's so simple. A child can figure it out. It's so simple that it almost seems crazy, like there has to be you know, something more to this. We have to contend for our faith. 
But just as Jude has pointed out from a position of, of victory, we are to fight as people who are called, who are loved, who are sanctified and kept. But just because the victory is already in hand doesn't mean that we won't have to fight. It's going to be intense. It's not a, a, a walk in the park. And so God's way, as we see in Jude, is to give his people confidence that their faith will be victorious in the end, but then go send them out to fight for it. And the goal of this book of Jude is to convey the duty of every genuine believer to contend for the faith for all delivered to the saints. Once, and once for all delivered to the saints. And so the obvious follow-up question is, how do we get there, right? Well, my hope this morning is to demonstrate to you, church, four ways in which our passage helps guide us in understanding uh, so that we know how we can contend for our faith. So let's look at verse 3 again. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Sometimes the word faith is used as the feeling of trust in Christ, and other times in this passage here, it's used as truths that we believe about God. Sometimes it's important to stress that Christianity is primarily a relationship with Jesus rather than a set of ideas about Jesus because the reason we do this is because no one is saved by believing a set of ideas about Jesus. Even the devil believes in a lot of truths about Christianity. We need to stress that unless a person has living trust in Jesus as Savior and, and, and Lord, all these ideas will not get them into heaven. But if we stress that this personal relationship with Jesus leads us, and that leads us to deny that there's a set of truths out there that are essential to Christianity, that's where we can make a big mistake. There are truths about God, about church, about man, about the world that are essential to the life of Christianity. And so if those are lost or if those are distorted, it's not just going to bring a bunch of wrong ideas to that person. They're going to be misplacing their trust. They're not going to be trusting in Christ. You can't live out your faith and separate it from the doctrine that you subscribe to. When doctrine goes bad, the heart goes bad too. There is a body of doctrine, essential truths that need to be preserved. Why do you ask? Well, verse 3 of our passage says that faith is said to be delivered to the saints. That means it was passed down from the apostles. It wasn't just thought up. It was revealed by God to the apostles and then taught to the churches as the whole counsel of God. And one of the most important phrases in that verse is once for all. Here we are, right? 2,000 and some years later, after the faith was delivered to the church, and we're surrounded with hundreds of people, we're surrounded with hundreds of different types of beliefs and cults who claim to have a new revelation from God to mankind. Muhammad has his Quran. Joseph Smith has the Book of Mormon. And you meet people every day who consider every popular trend uh, and, and belief a suitable replacement for Christianity, and it's not. So please notice very carefully, Jude taught that the faith 
has been once for all delivered to the saints. God revelation, God's revelation we find in the Bible is finished. The church is built on this foundation of the apostles and the prophets. You can read about that in Ephesians 2.20 on your own time. Anyone who claims to have this a new word from God to add to the faith that was once given to these saints is against Scripture. The reason we have the Bible that we have today is that the church during the 3rd and 4th century recognized that God had spoken once for all in these writings. The canon is closed and every other claim out there is now measured against the standard of faith that was already established. And so given how precious this truth is, church, we have an obligation to guard it. And so that's my first point on how we can contend for the faith. Number one, guard the already established truth. Guard the already established truth. Guard what has been passed down to the apostles. When we say that there is a faith that has been delivered to all the saints, we mean faith and not faith. Faiths, plural. Today, it's normal to speak about how there's so much diversity in the New Testament. And uh, of course, there's diversity in the New Testament. You know, there's different authors there. But the emphasis in verse 3 is unity. There is an apostolic faith. There is a body of doctrine that hangs together and is called faith. We shouldn't add to it. We shouldn't take from it. It's once and for all delivered to the saints. And one foundational reason we need to guard this truth, church, is biblical illiteracy. We find this in the culture. We find this in church. People simply just don't know what the Bible says anymore. And as a result, some of the most basic tenets of Christianity, the ones that would have been known and assumed to be true, are now seen by most Christians as obscure. Preaching now that Jesus is the only way, that we are saved by grace through faith, preaching that Jesus is the Son of God, these are no longer to be assumed by many self-professing Christians. Almost no one knows the Ten Commandments anymore, let alone believes that they're even relevant to them. And Christian education is just this foreign concept. As a result, we just we don't have this culture where people... Uh, are, are learning about these basic ideas. Today, not even people who've attended the church as children have heard foundational biblical truths, and so we can't assume anything. We need to be prepared to defend the most basic claims and ideas of our faith. We've got to be prepared to do that from the Bible. You see, the belief that truth is relative is directly in opposition to the objective truth of the gospel. And I learned this the hard way. You know, Mira and I, were, we were having dinner with some friends and having a great time, just catching up. It was going so well, the conversation was flowing, and all of a sudden, faith came up. And my friend learned that I wholeheartedly believed that the truth of the gospel was objective, specifically when it came to Roman Catholicism and its false teachings on a works-based salvation. And once he found that out, he immediately set to argue what's called inclusivism. That God surely wouldn't hold a works-based salvation against the, the Catholic Church. He was 
arguing from his conscience, not from the word of God. And it was a very trying time. And reflecting on experiences like that, I'm like, huh. I realized over the years, I've come face to face with a lot of postmodernism. It comes in many different forms. There's no belief of objective truth anymore. And if there's anything that I can do uh, to encourage you, church, it's this. Learn to use the power of the word to shape your arguments. It'll force others to acknowledge that there is an authoritative support for the position that you hold and not for theirs. It might not result in someone believing that the Bible is authoritative, but it will show that the debate is between man's word versus God's word. We live in a world now where there's just such open opposition to the Bible. It's just so prevalent in Western society today. Gone are the days where, you know, we held those, those truths with such uh, preciousness. Today, Christianity is seen as a threat to freedom. It's seen as a thing that people subscribe to if they're crazy, if they don't believe in science. You see, schools accept the theory of evolution, but the idea of creation is just a dangerous myth. Judges view the biblical view of marriage between a man and a woman as hate speech. In fact, in some places, child protective services have at times listed regular church attendance as one of the hallmarks of abusive parenting. In this landscape, church, we have to be ready as Christians to have an answer for those who believe that we're wrong, that we're evil. And the Word can be such a powerful tool in the midst of this opposition. I'm not saying that, you know, debating or, or, or you know, Arguing with people is, is going to stop, stop people from opposing you. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But what we can do is we can definitely expose the hypocrisy and point them to the truth that is powerful with this active two-edged sword of God's Word. We have this at our disposal. So I encourage you, church, to use it. Use it when you're speaking to people. When people oppose you for your faith. Guard the already established truth. The second point that Jude is trying to make here when we contend for the faith is we also have to realize, number two, realize the worthiness of the fight. Realize the worthiness of the fight. Here we are in Jude being told what to contend for, what we believe. And what we can infer from this is that there is a body of doctrine that is worth contending for, that is worth even dying for. There's obviously some secondary applications that are not worth, you know, getting into a, a tiffle with your, your brother and sister in the Lord with, but mark this down in your mind. There is a truth worth contending for. There is a truth worth dying for. And that's difficult for the world to understand. We might be able to imagine dying for people, but not many today would consider truths that we have so precious that we would contend for them, that we would die for them. And it wasn't always that way, right? The faith was preserved with the blood of hundreds of martyrs, of reformers even. In the 1500s, many Protestant reformers were burned at the stake. 
And why were they burned? Because they believed a truth. One of the truths that they believed was that Jesus' body is not in the Lord's Supper or communion, because that's what the Catholic Church believed, but in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And for that, they were burned alive. They were burned at the stake. There's many uh, uh, martyrs we read about in, in Scripture. We read about Paul. We, re- we read about Peter. We read about Stephen. The blood of martyrs is a powerful testimony that the faith has been established and is worth contending for. Jude says what he's really writing about here in, in verse 3 is common salvation, right? Since I am eager to write with write to you about our common salvation, it is necessary to urge you to contend for the faith. When our faith is at stake, church, our salvation is at stake. And if, there, if our truth is lost, our salvation is lost. The apostles, the, the reformers were willing to die for the sake of our faith because they cared about whether the the message of salvation was preserved. They cared about people and the glory of God. Church, we need to gain a whole new sense of preciousness when it comes to biblical doctrine. We need to know, church, the depth and beauty and value of doctrine. There is a faith worth contending for. There is a faith worth dying for. And I can't even begin to overestimate the value of having men like Pastor Ian, like Elder Joel, who have worked their way in unifying this heart of faith and are committed to teach it. We need to realize the worthiness of this fight. And in Paul's last message to the pastors of the church in Ephesus, in Acts 20, 29 to 30, Paul is warning them that after his departure, in verse 29, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. The wolves who pervert the faith are what? They're Christians. They're Christians. They are pastors. They are church leaders. They are seminary teachers. They're missionaries. In Jude, another reason that the church needed to protect itself to contend for the faith was in verse verse 4. It says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. What types of people were they? They were ungodly people who perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. The instruction is clear, church. In order to contend for the faith, we must thirdly protect the truth from falsehood. Protect truth from falsehood. The threat of faith is coming from those who are inside the church. And it's, that's a scary thought. They're probably saying something like this, right? If we were saved by grace, then, you know, it doesn't really matter what we do morally. In fact, if we sin, it's only magnifying the grace of Jesus Christ. And so they turn this grace against God, against the commandments of Christ, and then, in effect, they deny Christ as Lord. False teachers have crept where the authority of Jesus is swept. False teachers have crept where the authority of Jesus is swept. And that's why it's been, and and, and that's what it's always been, that's how it's always been since Paul in the first century. And Jude even saw it happening. 
He saw it as a fulfillment of the apostles' predictions. Later on in the letter of Jude, in verses 17 to 19, it says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, they said to you. In the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who set up divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. It probably cost Paul a lot of tears. Literally, all his letters had to do with some kind of contention between professing Christians. And it shouldn't surprise us today that much of our contending in faith will be with professing Christians who teach and write from perspectives that are contrary to what? The, the faith that has been established once and for all from the saints. The plain New Testament teaching is that the faith will be repeatedly threatened from within. And so that leads us to the final rebuke. In order to contend for the faith, we must lastly take individual responsibility. Take individual responsibility to prepare. You see, the, the, the letter of Jude was not written to a pastor. It was, remember in verse 1, to those who are called, loved, and kept in Jesus Christ. So the duty to contend for the faith is not just for the pastor. Although there's some special responsibility there, the duty is for every genuine believer. You hear that? It's not just Pastor Ian out there on his own contending for your faith. No, you have an individual responsibility to prepare. Verses 20 to 21 of that same letter, it says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your host." your most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord in Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. The best thing that you can do to become a church that is effective in contending for your faith is to become a church that is well built on the faith. Build yourselves up on your most holy faith. Study, meditate, build, grow. There's so much wonderful truth from God to learn. And the best defense is to know it and to love it and to practice it. Prayer is an indispensable part of contending for the faith. Pray to God the Holy Spirit. How many of you are praying to the Holy Spirit? Unless we seek the mind of the Holy Spirit in prayer, we will not grow in our grasp to the, uh, to the faith. And we're going to be weak contenders. When it comes to contending, Jude says in verse 22 to 23, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by flesh. There are two things that are clear there. One is that sometimes contending does involve some kind of intellectual uh, effort to change the way a person thinks. You know, you're going to have to convince some who doubt. But then in another case, it's also about Sometimes going after them, right, in verse 22. Going into the mess where their falsehood has taken them and snatched them back. Bring them back to reality. Bring them back to the truths of God, even though you, you know and you hate what they're doing. And those things always go together. An effort to change the mind and, and to change your morals. And contending for the, the faith is never just an intellectual thing. But the source of all false doctrine is the pride of man. It's the pride of man's heart. 
not the weakness of his mind. So that's why Jude tells us to grow and pray in the love of God and depend on his mercy. And before he says anything about how we should contend for the faith, he says we need to live it. And that's why Peter says in, in 1 Peter 3.15, Be prepared to make a defense of anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. Do it with gentleness and reverence. You see, the way that you contend is even important. You need to do it graciously. Don't get into a heated argument. You're going to lose the other person. Remember, this whole thing started with the gospel. You've been called, you've been sanctified, right? Loved, kept for Jesus Christ. The whole point of Jude's letter is to say, you know, I hoped to talk about uh, your salvation. I wanted to write to you about the joys of your salvation. I wanted to celebrate the position that you had in Christ. I wanted to rejoice with you, people that are being baptized. And before all that, I need to make sure that we're on the same team, that we're on the same page. And there's all these warning signs that Jude is looking at, right? For these people that are destined for judgment, ungodly. They've corrupted the grace of God. They deny Jesus as master. They grumble. They complain all day. When we're supposed to be celebrating life, we're supposed to be celebrating Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Through communion and fellowship of the saints. And, but we're only, we only care about ourselves. We should be anchoring our lives to the Word of God in prayer, and instead we're relying on our own intuition. We're just taking selfies at the gym, and we're not contending for the faith. Have we forgotten what we've been saved from, church? Have we forgotten that we deserve hell? Have we forgotten the worst thing that you have going on in your life right now is infinitely better than eternal separation from God? Well, that puts things in perspective, doesn't it? Have we forgotten that this world is not our home? And so this morning, I'm going to stop the message here and simply remember to call to mind what is true. If anyone, if anyone had a right to complain, who would it be? Jesus. Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected by people. A man who knew what suffering was. He knew what sickness was. He was one of those people who you turned away from and you didn't value. Yet he took upon our sickness, our pain, our affliction. Nails were spiked in his hands because of our own sin, because of our own rebellion, not his own. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And he didn't even open his mouth. If anyone could uh, complain about his situation, it would have been Jesus Jesus knew that he was called before the foundation of the world, and that was the plan of the Father. Jesus was loved by the Father. Jesus knew he was being kept by the power of the Holy Spirit so that the Father would glorify and bring many people to salvation. You see, Jesus just didn't come for the righteous people, the ones that have their act all together. He came for those who grumbled, for the complainers, he came for those who made a shipwreck of their lives, those who are being self-centered and fruitless. 
in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. Jesus went to battle the powers of darkness so that you and I could contend for our faith from a position of victory, not from a position of defeat. And he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, glorified as Master and Lord. And his promise is that anyone who calls on his name will be saved. So what does it mean to call on his name? To confess that you're a sinner. He already knows that, but how do you do that? To confess that there is no hope of salvation on your own. What the sinner finds offensive, the believer finds protective. Praise God for his glorious gospel. Having a reasonable defense for the gospel is crucial, church, in this day and age when biblical illiteracy is on the rise. Having unqualified elders and deacons, let alone believers who cannot articulate the gospel and defend it when it is challenged is problematic for the spiritual health and growth of the church. And so may God equip us to contend for the faith by guarding the already established truth, by realizing the worthiness of the fight, by protecting the truth from falsehood, and by taking individual responsibility to protect or to prepare for the opposition that lies ahead. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, you have spoken so clearly to us, Lord, and we realize, God, where we fall short. And so I pray, God, as a church, would you help us to grow in the areas where we need to grow? We fully believe that your word does not return void. God, would you help us contend for the faith? Help us to do our homework, Lord. Not just claim to be Christians, but Lord, actually do the work. Help us to dig into your word. Help us to rely on your Holy Spirit to guard the, the truths that have been established by the apostles, by your church, to protect it from falsehood, Lord, to recognize that it is worth dying for, that it is worth contending for. Let us come to that realization, Lord, by your grace. Lord, if there is anything that we have done that has brought shame to your sight, will you forgive us? Help us to come to you, Lord, in repentance. And I pray. that you would change us from the inside out, that we not leave this place changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.